Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad for this day. Excited to have my first guest. At about age 30, Shannon Bream was practicing law, and she took an internship at a local TV station. She was working the overnight shift and weekends because she fell in love with the news biz. Today, she hosts her own show on Fox News at night with Shannon Bream. And in the TV business, in the midst of a pandemic, a presidential election, and a Supreme Court nomination She made time to write a book. This is her second book, and it's called The Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of 16 Women and Their Lessons for Today. Hello, Shannon, and is Biscuit by your side? You know what? She is not currently, but I'm trying to make sure she's nice and quiet during our chats. (laughs) Well, she's a beautiful dog. (laughs) I'll tell her you asked about her. Yeah. So uh, first, I would love for you to tell me about Nell. Well, my grandmother Nell is in heaven with the Lord now. Mm -hmm. Um, She was an amazing, just bolt of light in my life. I mean, my parents divorced when I was very young, and we actually lived with my grandparents for several years when I was growing up, and that included Nell and Phil, my grandparents on my mom's side, and uh, listen, she just was such a a model of faith to me, one of my favorite, favorite traditions we had on Sundays, um, older in her life especially, we would pick her up and take her to church, and she always sat in her specific (laughs) pew, she would be right up front, hear the music, hear the pastor, and we would go to lunch afterwards, she always wore a hat to church, and we would have lunch afterwards, and I just I love those memories of those years. Um, she lived to be a hundred and two. Oh wow! And um, was just a joyful person. I mean, throughout her life, and and even in the end, when you know there were struggles, and she lost my grandfather, um, she just was so faithful about um, church and her witness. And um, I'm grateful for her. Yeah, uh, Shannon, tell me about your other grandmother, Margaret. Margaret is still with us. She is about to be 96 years old. And um, she, too, you know, in older age has had physical struggles and things, but she every day is sort of this attitude of, listen, I woke up today. The Lord gave me another day. She'll tell me, she says, I talk to him all the time. He knows I'm ready to come home, and um, today's not the day, so I'm going to be grateful for this day that I have and um, just know that he's got them all purposed out, and, um, you know, she's just going to be joyful in her circumstances. So a great role model to me as well. Yeah. Shannon, I know you dedicated the book to Nell and Margaret, so I did want to ask right up front about those two beautiful, lovely women. Thank you. And I also want to throw your mom into this whole mix and then ask this question. Do you think you are where you are today because of the strong women in your life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my mom is a prayer warrior. She is somebody who, if you tell her that you need something or if you've got a need, I mean, she's, you can rest assured, she's just not one of these people, oh, I'll pray for you. No, she will be praying for you for hours in the middle of the night, whenever it is that the Lord prompts her to do that. Um, yeah, she's a very strong, faithful witness. And I, I say, and I'm not even joking, like, I want to be her when I grow up, be more like her. <laughs> she is somebody who lives out the whole love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that is every day of her life. I mean, she is just the most selfless, um, godly person. And uh, listen, we're all flawed. She's not a saint, um, but she's pretty close, probably the closest of anybody I know. Mm-hmm. 
I'm talking to Shannon Bream. Her new book, The Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of 16 Women and Their Lessons for Today. You can go order the book right now and get it because, you know, Shannon, here we are, these amazing women, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them. Exactly. And the thing is, some of their stories I've heard and known growing up, being in the Bible, being in church, being in uh, Christian school, but I learned something about every single woman that is included in the book, just, you know, more historical context, more detail to their story. So if you're somebody who has studied the Word, I think you'll probably be like me and learn new things and, and see new discoveries. And if you are somebody who has, you know, not been interested in the Bible or you've been intimidated by the Bible, I think these stories are so relatable because women from centuries ago have many of the same problems that women struggle with today. I mean, family squabbles and sibling rivalry, infertility, widowhood, um, chronic illness, feeling like God doesn't hear or see you. We see that through all of these stories of these women, and I was just so encouraged and inspired by them and seeing how God worked through every circumstance. When I uh, read the book, I'm I'm thinking this is a this is a deep dive. This is we're not. We're not jet skiing across the water. We're we're scuba diving, <laughs> Shannon. You've done some really serious, deep theological work. You present the stories very clearly. They're fun to read. They're exciting to read. And then you have all these incredibly good questions at the end. This is really well done. Well, thank you so much. And listen, there are people I relied on and reached out to you when I had the deeper theological questions or needed context for what were the customs at the time and right. why was this word important? What does this mean in Greek or Hebrew? Um, you know, so there were people that God gave me as angels, I like to call them along the way, who would let me ask some of those deeper questions. And that's how I learned so much in the process really was through probing the people who are um, more experts at at this than I am. But, you know, in that, like I said, I, I learned and fully, more fully appreciated these stories. I love study questions, and I'm so glad that we included them because you can do them alone. Just kind of take yourself a little deeper into the application and what it means and what you can discover from the scriptures and the stories uh, or do it as a group. Um, and I'm excited that I've already had several people say to me, yeah, I've ordered this for my mom and sisters. We're going to do it, you know, a Zoom Bible study. Um, I always learn from other people and, and what they get from studying the Word and their different perspectives as well. So, yeah, I hope it's something that people will enjoy these stories because, listen, you know, we didn't have to do a thing to them. They're fascinating and exciting and interesting on their own. Um, but that next step of, of applying them and digging into them for your own benefit, I hope will help people too. Mm-hmm. And I want to say her book is for everybody. And Shannon, I'm guessing that even men who are raising daughters often don't know how to talk to them. Do you think uh, dad showing his daughter the women you write about is a great way to, to broach difficult topics? Yeah, and I think that they could walk through this book together for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, because we see these women are flawed. They're not um, perfect, and I love that the Bible doesn't sanitize their stories. Um, I don't think any of the major characters included in the Bible are sanitized in any way. God allows us to see their sin and their mistakes. And listen, some of these women make wildly inappropriate uh, decisions, <laughs> get way off track. But I love that we can see God still works through all of it. And so I think that's an important message for women who may feel like, I've really messed up in this area or that area. We all do. I mean, none of us is um, without sin. And so seeing that God could redeem um, their um, very questionable decisions and the messes they made in their life, I think it's a beautiful picture of how he can work through all of our circumstances, good and bad. Mm -hmm. Shannon, do you think your book is a, uh, a way to give all women, strong women in their life to look up to? 
yeah. because um, I hope that it also dispels the myth that women were sort of, you know, bit players or second-class citizens. Um, that is not how God views them at all. Um, and especially at the, the end of the book, I have a chapter about Jesus and several different women he encountered. And I love that they are treated as equals. He goes to people that society would have considered outcasts or, you know, on the fringes or unacceptable. Um, he goes right to them, and he doesn't talk down to them. He talks with them. Um, I think about the the Samaritan woman at the well as a perfect example of somebody who, you know, she was there in the heat of the day because it was the least, um, you know, acceptable or enticing time to go. But she was living a life where she was, you know, ashamed and an outcast. And Christ went to the well knowing full well he would see her and talk with her. And he doesn't judge and berate her. He has a conversation with her. And I love to see the compassion that he has with all of the women that he interacted with. Um, and there were women who were part of his um, his inner circle who studied with him and learned from him, which was not the norm of the time. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have leaders like Deborah who led the entire nation of Israel. So I think that there's so much to see there with leadership and with respect uh, and inclusion that the way that God views women um, were created in his image. And um, there's great respect. And I think that's all throughout the book, the Bible itself. And, and we just try to share it in this book as well. One of the stories I would love for you to talk about is Mary and Martha of Bethany, because as I think of John eleven five, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What a great time to talk about that this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these sisters of Lazarus were very close to Jesus, and he was in their home. And, you know, we always think of, uh, in the Christian faith, people say, are you a Mary or a Martha? Because we have this conflict <laughs> mm-hmm. between the sisters where Martha's like, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to help me? I'm waiting on you guys. I'm doing everything. And he says, you know what? She's chosen to study at my feet, and that's the better thing, and I won't take that away from her. So that's disregarding what Martha was doing, because there is certainly room for us all to be in service. Um, But I think that he was highlighting that studying at his feet and really having a relationship with Christ is going to be the better one we have to choose. We shouldn't be about just busy work or the service, but really about our relationship with Christ. Um, And we see as as we walk through their grief uh, that they had in the loss of their brother Lazarus and why Christ had the timing and allowing him to pass away and then coming back and resurrecting him. Um, so I think that there are just so many lessons then as we as we go on to look to the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is in this book as well, and the roles that these women played in being in ministry to Christ uh, and how he ultimately reveals himself in the garden to Mary Magdalene. And we talk about why there are so many Marys in the Bible too, why that <laughs> name was so popular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much of Holy Week that is in this book as well. It's uh, lovely that you sorted out all the Marys in this book. It was very helpful. <laughs> it's worth the price of the book alone. Um, when I think about this story, when Martha, and you, you say this in the book, Martha understood the resurrection to be an event that would happen in the future. Jesus showed her, her that the resurrection was a person. And I always love that because uh, mm-hmm. Jesus dealt with them so individually. He sort of said to mm-hmm. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And with Mary, he just wept along with her. Mm-hmm. So beautiful that he yeah. meets people where they're at. Exactly. And and he knows that we're all different and we're human beings and that we all have different strengths and weaknesses and meets us right where we are. Um, and he does relate to people differently in the Bible. And I think it's wonderful that you point that out. It's such a great point that um, it's not a cookie cutter uh, situation. It's a true relationship. That's what he wants to have with us. Yeah. It wasn't an across the board answer. Here's my answer for all of you. He met with them individually uh-huh. And Mary just needed tears, just Uh Jesus's presence. It's just so beautiful. 
Let me take a short yeah. break. I'm talking to Shannon Bream. She's written her new book, The Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of 16 Women and Their Lessons for Today. I highly recommend you get your hands on this book ASAP. You can head over right now to Amazon.com and get your order in. Take a short break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Shannon Bream. In addition to everything she does, she also used to contribute uh, recipes to Fox News. I tried to make one of them, uh, the chicken pot pie and cobbler recipe. I don't know if you know this, Shannon, but those are actually two separate recipes mine came out more like a swanson's tv dinner it's kind of the main course and dessert all in one i know there's a lot there there's a lot in those recipes and it shows you just the level of technique and expertise that i have with cooking (laughs) so it was lovely thank you for that um so you uh i want to talk about some of your favorite characters as you write wrote your book the women of the bible speak who came to the surface for you personally You know, I've always loved the story of the woman. We don't even know her name, but she had the issue of bleeding for 12 years. In the Gospels, that story has just always resonated with me that, you know, in studying this, what I figured out is that she was probably considered unclean in those days, meaning she wouldn't have had a place studying in the temple or in the markets. She's probably very isolated and wasn't supposed to be among people. So she, when we meet her, has spent everything that she had. She has nothing financially left. She's had no cure, no doctor who could help her, and she hears about Jesus, and she says, you know what? If I could just get to him and touch the hem of his garment, I believe that would be enough to heal me. So she's out among this crowd, and that's exactly what she does, and Scripture tells us she immediately was healed, but also that Jesus knew that some power had gone out from him. So he turns around and says, who touched me? And, you know, one of the disciples sort of laughing, like, um, you're in this crowd. People are always touching you. And we know, of course, Christ knew who touched him. And in the gospel accounts, we see that this woman fell down before him, trembling in fear. And she certainly knew that he would know it was her. And I wonder what went through her mind if he was going to berate her for being there and being unclean and reaching out to touch him, even his garment. Um, And he doesn't do any of that. We see in all the accounts, the first thing he says to her is daughter. So he's Hmm. giving her complete compassion and acceptance in the midst of the situation. And he says to her, your faith has made you whole. I mean, clearly it was his divine power, but she had to reach out and go there and, and believe that it would be enough. And it was. And I just have always admired her great faith and, and just the picture of seeing Christ's compassion for her through that too. It's just inspiring to me. Don't you notice, Shannon, how Jesus gravitates to the people at the margins? Mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah, and you think of this woman obviously would have been isolated. Uh, probably had spent everything she had trying to get well, mm-hmm. and was just at her wit's end. Yeah, and and you think about the fact that he went to the woman also who right. was about to be stoned for adultery, mm-hmm. and. Um, the case against her uh, appears to be solid, and the law would say this is the right thing to do. 
And Christ interceded there and, and, you know, made everybody who was accusing her and about to stone her to death to think about their own sin. And it wasn't that he excused what she had done, uh, but what he said is, I don't condemn you. You know, go and live a life free of sin. Don't go back to the sin, but you're not condemned as a person or as a human being. Um, he saved her life, but I, I like to think it wasn't just a physical life. He saved her spiritual life as well. And, um, you know, that, that wasn't something that the religious leaders of the day were known to do, was to, to go to the rescue of an adulterous woman or um, somebody who was living in sin, as the, you know, was phrased for the woman at the, the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, and even you think about Zacchaeus, the tax keeper or, or the tax collector, um, he didn't shy away from people that were unpopular and that had sin and that were messy. When I think of the Marys, and you did a beautiful job in your book sorting them out, which I appreciate, I would love for you to uh, comment on, on Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like so much of my study of her over my lifetime has been that very beginning, that visit from the angel mm-hmm. telling her about her divine appointment and what's coming. And I've always focused on her there. And in studying this, I thought, it's so interesting to me to look through her life, the, the places where she's clearly a mother to Jesus, but also there for his ministry. And I think about her at the end at the crucifixion, seeing your child falsely mm. accused and tortured and beaten and killed. I, I cannot imagine any mother having to walk through that. Um, but she's faithful and she's there. And we see that after his death as well, she is with the disciples. She is in prayer. She is faithful, and she is an early part of the um, the earliest church. And so while my focus in the past has always been on just those beginning, um, probably overwhelming days that she had as a young woman, realizing she would give birth to Christ in the human form, um, I, I thought it was important to look at the rest of her life, too, and how um, she was faithful, and she was there from beginning to end of Jesus' ministry, and, and even in the um, the toughest days after his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the mother of Jesus watching and witnessing the crucifixion and the horrific event mm-hmm. that must have been. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's incredibly painful to mm-hmm. think of. And, you know, I, I just, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. And um, she was, um, you know, there for the good and the bad. And she knew from the beginning that it was a very special assignment, a divine assignment. But I, I have to think she couldn't have known this is the way it was going to go. And um, yet she was there for every moment. Mm-hmm. Shannon, what did you learn about uh, Rachel and Leah? Is that, you know, you think that most marriages must have been arranged, um, but then you read that uh, Jacob really kind of liked the way Rachel looked. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's kind of that love at first sight kind yeah. of thing, it seems, that was going on there. Um, and, you know, he worked uh, seven years with the deal with her father so that he could marry her. And then at the last minute, the dad sneaks in after the wedding feast, the other older sister who we're told was not the favored one, was not the beautiful one. So I think about, oh, my goodness, how much double crossing. And for Rachel to know that it was her sister that went to him for that wedding night and not her. Um, And for Jacob to wake up and feel so betrayed by the whole thing. Now, listen, if you know Jacob's story, he was a bit of a double crosser himself. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) some of this is catching up with him. 
Um, but we have this juxtaposition in that, um, you know, Rachel and Leah had this divide over uh, who was having children, who wasn't having children, who was loved by Jacob, who didn't feel loved by Jacob. I mean, they each of the sisters had their own pain and their own struggle and um, feeling rejected and seeking God's favor and, and seeking children, which was very much viewed uh, as a means of, of favor or viewed as God's favor upon the women. Um, they had a terrible sibling rivalry that you know must have hurt them both very much at some point. Um, so I just think there's a lot there about relationships, about God's faithfulness, about um, continuing to take your hurts and your desires to him in prayer. Um, he knows us. He knows our hearts and our vulnerabilities. But I think there is definitely something in taking that next step of actually going to him in prayer, sharing them and asking for help. Mm-hmm. Shannon, one of my favorite stories in, is Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Easter morning. Mm-hmm. She really is yeah. the very first evangelist ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that, That listen, the disciples um, were there and they were by Christ's side all through his ministry. But ultimately, his resurrection is revealed to a woman. Right. And Mary was there. Um, she was so overwhelmed with grief and feeling like um, Jesus' body had disappeared and asking you know, where have you taken him? She's so overcome with her grief that she doesn't even realize she's actually talking to Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener or somebody there and just says, just tell me where you've taken him. That's all I want to know. And when he says her name, he says, Mary, she immediately recognizes it is her beloved teacher. It is Jesus. And um, I can't imagine the enormous joy she must have felt in thinking, oh my goodness, he's really not gone. He's everything he said he was. And um, her grief must have just instantly turned into immense joy. And she's, yes, then the one um, left to run and tell everybody, um, it's true, he's resurrected, he's back. I love Mary Magdalene. I love how tough she is. I, I think she would have been ready to arm wrestle the gardener. I think so too. <laughs> Where'd you put I the body? So, I want answers. Right. She was so passionate in her devotion to Christ. I think you're exactly right. But but sadly, I mean, she was she was looking for the wrong Jesus because Jesus says, I will raise up on the third day. So, you know, she was she had gone to the tomb that morning looking for a dead body. So how beautiful it was when she was when it was made known to her by Jesus himself. Just that joy, that immense joy. It's just so beautiful. It is. And you think about it, it's so easy for us in retrospect to look and see, well, why didn't they get it when he said this or that right. terrible? Why didn't he they understand? It's so easy for us because we have, uh, you know, the book and the cheat sheet about exactly what's happened <laughs> exactly. and the way to best understand it. So I have to remember that, you know, what if I were these folks in their shoes at the time? It would have been confusing. I would have been overwhelmed or maybe not understood everything Christ had tried to explain to them. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, we have a hindsight on it, but I think about in those moments, how confused they may have been and overwhelmed at times. Mm-hmm. The women of the Bible speak the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today written by Shannon Bream. She's been my guest, Shannon. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me yeah. and, um, just for highlighting these stories that I think hopefully will encourage a lot of folks. Oh, indeed they will. Thank you so much. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with lots more.
are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Okay, I have to admit I'm feeling a little self-indulgent today as I'm having some of my very favorite guests on today. And I know you will enjoy my next guest, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. He's uh, been on the program many times. He's written some of the most engaging books. I have all of them, and I regularly pick them up. I use them as uh, uh, references or little devotional studies or when I'm just wanting to pick up and read for 15 minutes. It's wonderful books. He's written the most misused stories of the Bible, the most misused verses in the Bible. And why is that in the Bible? And that's his most recent. It's a fascinating book, and he is uh, with us to talk about all of his books, but partly that one as well. Eric, welcome. Good good afternoon, Bill. It's so great to be on again with you. <laughs> it's so nice to have you on, and I, I love why is that in the Bible, the most perplexing verses and stories and what they teach us. And when I think about the conversation Satan has with God, and God kind of in a way, offers Job and says, well, what about my servant Job? Yeah. And that's kind of a troubling and perplexing exchange. It is, because he's basically offering up a godly man for yes. test- testing. And, you know, Job is even declared by God to be a righteous man. And so here is the Lord actually giving free and open reign to a degree. Now, let's keep that in mind. There's a limit to what he will permit Satan to do. But Satan said, hey, this guy's blessed. Why wouldn't he praise you? Take all that stuff away and he'll curse you. And 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 he's part of this celestial thing that's going on between God and Satan. And Job is unaware of it, but he trusts in the Lord in spite of it all. And what a great example he is. It is uh, so powerful. And um, and yeah, that, that whole idea that that God is is saying, "What about my servant Job?" And you, you feel rem- you feel like for you, you feel like for a minute uh, that I, I want God's protection. I don't want to be put in in harm's way. Right. Well, God does promise to protect us. Our salvation is secure. But there are a lot of things that happen in our lives that are really events that are going on in the heavenly realms that we don't know about. And the good thing about the story of Job is it gives us a glimpse into a world that is often not seen, and it allows us to at least try to make some sense of some of the trials and tribulations that we ourselves go through, all the while knowing that God is sovereign, God is good all the time, and that he has a plan for us, and in the end, he will receive us to himself. Mm-hmm. All right, Eric, talk about the uh, when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's mm-hmm. something I would love for you to uh, discuss. Right. Well, those are one of those hard sayings of Jesus that made many people fall away and walk away from him because they couldn't quite understand it. But what Jesus was doing was inviting people uh, to believe in him because it was only through his body being crucified, his blood that was going to flow at the cross that anyone was going to find salvation. And so we want to make sure we don't understand that passage as teaching as if 
well, as long as we take communion, which we understood to, you know, be symbolically the blood and the body of Christ, as long as we can take communion, we're assured salvation. That's not what the passage is talking about. It's not talking about communion. It has to do with identifying with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, primarily in the, his atoning death in this context. So it's only through faith in that that one will be saved. And so we need to make sure we understand that we're participating in the cross event through faith. And so his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We are in union with Christ through faith, such that all of those things become the source of our salvation. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. The passage out of Matthew in chapter 10, verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoa. Why is yeah. that in the Bible? <laughs> well, when, when I first heard that passage as a young kid, I thought to myself, wow, uh, I don't want to go to hell where Satan will destroy me. You know, And what I didn't really understand was that Jesus was actually saying that he is the one mm-hmm. that you should fear. Don't fear these people who can kill your body in this life, but fear judgment, the judgment of God that would happen in hell. So... So we need to make sure we understand that passage correctly, but it serves as a warning to us that we should not fear man more than we fear God himself. And ultimately, we shouldn't fear human beings. In fact, the Bible says, what can man do to me? Because essentially, they can take away this body, they can kill this body, but ultimately, the one who has governance over both my body and my soul is not the devil, but God himself. And that's where our healthy fear and reverence should be found. Mm -hmm. Eric, I get a little bit lightheaded when I think of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice. Mm. Me too. I I, I mean, I can't imagine a greater, uh, more profound trial than to actually be asked to offer up one's own son as a sacrifice to the Lord. It seems really out of character, out of place. But Abraham had that faith that God was going to do something, even if it says in the book of Hebrews, even if to the point where he had to follow through and slay his son, Abraham believed that, that God would raise his son immediately from the dead. Because even when he said to the people that had gone with him on this journey, stay here and me and the boy will go up to worship and we will come back to you. Mm. He actually knew that somehow God was going to do something, whether he was going to provide an alternative sacrifice or he was going to raise his son from the dead. <clears throat> but Abraham was going to walk in faith and trust in this God who had already given him many, many promises. Of course, Isaac himself was the promised child, you know. And so here Abraham had to exercise that kind of unbelievable faith and to the point where he had the knife raised ready to slay his son. And I can't, as a parent, even begin to imagine the horror of what that feeling must have been like, but yet he still trusted in God, even when humanly he didn't know how it was going to work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? <clears throat> so these stories in the Bible are there to teach us, to train us on faith, to, to teach us what to be aware of, how to trust in God, 
Um, some of these stories are bizarre and crazy, and you're just like, what is all this about? And it's so, some of it's about God bringing judgment on evil, right. the, the way in which he does it. Um, and he's he's got full reign over his uh, judgment over humankind, and he can do it anytime he wants in any way he wants. Mm-hmm. We should be just grateful that God has stayed our execution long enough that he gives us opportunity to believe in him. Mm-hmm. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest, and he's written a book called Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. You know, Eric, I've been throwing a lot of stuff at you. Why don't you bring up one of your favorite crazy stories that are, is in your book? Well, you know, there's a, there's there's too many to choose from. I <laughs> okay. mean, there's a lot of them here that I think that, that really tickle my fancy, but I think if I was going to choose choose one of them it's 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 probably going to be um one of my favorite old testament passages and it's 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 <laughs> i don't know how to say it we've talked about Balaam and the talking donkey before but one of my favorite ones was Jeremiah's linen underwear. I think we've <laughs> talked about that one, too. Um, so I'm trying to find something that we haven't talked about before that's one of my favorites. Um, there's there's great stuff in the New Testament as well with Ananias and Sapphira, the, um, the, the angel armies of, of Elijah in the Old Testament. is probably one of my top ten because here is Elijah who is uh, giving secrets of the enemy to the king of Israel and one of the things that he tells him is that, hey, you go down here, they're going to set up an ambush against you. So he keeps telling them and telling them, you know, don't go down there. And the king of Aram or Syria, either one it could be called, um, is wondering who is it in his own camp who's giving away his secrets? Who's the leak yeah. in, in <laughs> all of this? Who's the mole yeah. who's spilling the secrets to the king of Israel? And his own lieutenants and generals say, no, 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 it's none of us. It's that prophet over there in Israel. He keeps telling the king of Israel even the secrets of, of what you speak in your bedroom. Now, if that isn't horrifying enough right there, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know what is. So this brilliant king of, of Aram, the enemy of Israel, decides, okay, well, let's sneak up and catch this prophet. And what's so ironic and hilarious about that is why would this king now think that their new plan is going to work against somebody who's already telling the king of Israel their secrets? So they basically go and surround Elisha and his servant at night, trying to ambush him. And Elisha basically is calm as a cucumber, but his servant is nervous. He gets up, looks out, sees all the all the armies of, of Aram surrounding them and saying, My father, my father, what shall we do? What shall we do, my master? And and basically Elisha says, Don't worry, there's more of us than there are of them. And he's like, What? Yeah, and so Elisha prays at that point and asks God to open his servant's eyes, and he sees all of these angel armies that are surrounding them, protecting them from potential evil. And that story just pricks my imagination, because how many times has God sent his angels to protect us? And we have absolutely no idea, once again, just like the Job story, of what's going on in the heavenly realms, and how God in his graciousness protects us from evil and harm. Mm-hmm. Eric, I'm going to jump to one of your other books just for one question, then I'm going to go mm-hmm. back to the uh, the other one. But 
Uh, I've been meaning to ask you for a while. I've, I've jotted this down. Ask Eric about an eye for an eye, the yeah. passage out of Exodus 21. Well, we use a lot of the culture today uses that as justification for revenge, when in actuality it was designed in the Mosaic Code in the Old Testament to say that whatever punishment happens as a result of this violation of the law, the punishment must fit the crime. So if you and I get uh, pulled over for going 40 mile per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone, we shouldn't expect to get the death penalty for that. Right. So at least I hope not. But the punishment that we get, whatever fine we have to pay, um, is it ought to be commensurate with the crime itself. So that's what the eye for an eye means. It's not warrant for getting back at someone or giving you permission to get revenge. It's more about the punishment must fit the crime. And I think the context of that is very important. In fact, all of these scriptures that I talk about in my books are all based out of what is the original context with the author intended and the original hears heard. That's what we have to go after. Mm-hmm. I'll take a little break. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. The book that we are mostly chatting about is called Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and what they teach us. And I got to let you know, it's a, it's a fun book. It's an easy read. Uh, each chapter is kind of its own little standalone story, and it's about three or four pages. So each little story you can read in, you know, five or ten minutes and get a full understanding and comprehension of it, and you'll walk away a much smarter person. So we'll be back in a few minutes. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. He's written a number of books. The one we're chatting about is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. I love uh, learning, and you do such a nice job of uh, giving us an understanding of these difficult passages uh, you know, Eric, I'd love for you to talk about the lead us not into temptation. Mm. Yeah, in fact, that's part of, of the Lord's Prayer. We know that God would not purposefully lead us into sin. So what's that all about? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's the question that, that we have to ask is, what are we praying for there in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, lead us not to temptation? Well, I believe it's it has to do with the idea that we don't want to be put in a situation that would overwhelm us to the point where we have nothing to do but give in. And, and of course, we, this is where we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Paul elsewhere um, said that when we are tempted in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, he said, when we are tempted, the Lord will always provide for us a way out that we may be able to escape it. Um, so the goal to get out of temptation is not to give in to it, but to look for the God-ordained hole that he's opened up for you to escape that temptation. So what we're praying for there is praying for God to, to, to lead us in a way that we're not going down a path of temptation that would overwhelm us. And, and so I think that the goal there is, to, is found in the very, very next phrase, uh, lead us not to temptation, but what? Deliver us. From evil, so the next phrase actually helps us understand 
what is meant by the prayer, lead us not into temptation. So we want to be delivered from evil. Um, The fact is we're going to experience temptation, and it's not wrong to experience temptation. In fact, we know even our Lord was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and so he himself provides the example for us. What do we do in the midst of that temptation? Well, we we go to Scripture. that's, That's our lifeline, and that's what Jesus did. He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil, and and basically refuted all of the line of thinking that the devil was tempting him with, with Scripture. Because Scripture has a way of getting our heads on straight. And this is one of the things that I, I want to talk about today, Bill. If you have a second, I'd love, I'd love to chat about this whole idea of the role of experience in interpreting Scripture and in the role of experience in the Christian life. Because experience is very, very important. And and we all have them, and we have experiences with God, but experience doesn't come at the expense of truth. One of the principles that I I try to teach in my classes here at Trinity College in Florida uh, and in my adjunct courses at Shepherd Theological Seminary is the fact that Scripture interprets experience. It's not the other way around. So Scripture kind of serves as the lens through which we should interpret our experiences, but today, everyone is all about their own experiences or their own version of truth, and they often read that back into Scripture or try to make Scripture bend to what they already believe about their experience. And that's what's dangerous. We have to make sure that Scripture has its right place uh, as, as the primary means through which we understand Scripture. I even had I've had conversations before where someone has come up to me and said, "You know what? I know that's what that scripture means. I know that's original. That's what the original context is, or what the author may have meant, or what the original hearers might have heard. But that's not how I read the scripture. Here's how I've experienced that scripture, and that's the most important thing to me. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's that's not it. That's I mean, the devil uses experiences to deceive us." But the Holy Spirit's job, according to John 16, is to lead us and guide us into all truth. Mm-hmm. Nicely said. Thank you for sharing that. So when I read a verse like Luke fourteen twenty six that says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, mm-hmm. wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That seems a little radical, doesn't it? Well, it does seem a little radical, and it's one of those things where we have to say, okay, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Obviously, we know we're not supposed to literally hate our family. That would be unbiblical and not in keeping with Christian love or Christ-like love. So what does Jesus mean there? He's actually using a Hebrew idiom, and it's the idea that um, you should love something less than me. So he uses the word hate, and it kind of comes across as a different – we understand it from our experience as hate is like the worst thing ever. But Jesus is basically saying, don't love anything in this world more than you love me. So it's it's an idiom that's used as a comparison Mm. here. Um, Love me most and then love everything else second. But don't love those things more than me. So it's, it's, a, it's a phrase, it's a way he speaks that would have been understood to the original hearers of his day because it's used as a comparison uh, in the Hebrew idiom and not necessarily a literal hate for your family. Yeah, and it's not that we love 
bad things, but sometimes we can love good things too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we're supposed to love them less right. because what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Okay, Eric, we understand uh, marriage to be um, one man, one woman for life. Explain why Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, Because he disobeyed God's commands. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the the short of it. Solomon is is not really um, a picture of a moral example that we want to follow. And, you know, a lot of those people in the ancient Middle East did practice a lot of the pagan practices that were in the in the region, and one of them was multiple marriages. And one of the reasons why they did the multiple marriages was actually to make covenants and treaties with these other nations, and that was the way they would solidify it, by maybe marrying a girl from the other tribe in order to solidify some kind of relational agreement. And so they did that quite common in the Old Testament, and David did it as well. He had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple wives, but that is not the way the Bible teaches that marriage should go. In fact, the scriptures actually condemn that earlier in the Mosaic Code. And so so what we know to be true is all the way back to Genesis, where everything was defined for us at the very beginning, that it should be one man and one woman as committed companions for life. They become one flesh. But those people in the ancient Near East didn't follow those commands, and Solomon was swayed. It says he was swayed even by these wives to 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 worship and follow other gods towards the end of his life he kind of compromised his faith in many ways and and so yes that is not meant to be a model um that is descriptive and what we talk about in scriptural uh teaching is that that is not um prescriptive in other words how we should live our life but it's descriptive of how they lived their life so it can't be used as warrant for that kind of living today it's describing inappropriate behavior back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luke 12 is troubling when it says from now on, uh, or do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against one another, three against two and two against three. Right. What's with that division? Similar similar situation. He's describing what's going to happen as a result of his coming, not necessarily saying this is why he came. So he's not saying, well, I've come here just to divide everybody up. No, he wants unity, but that's not going to happen because the gospel himself, the word, the word Jesus himself, um, the word that we use for Jesus is Christ, right? Jesus the Christ, he's, that in itself is offensive to people, and it's going to be naturally offensive, and it's going to cause division. There are going to be people who are not going to believe in him, not going to trust in him. And so when he was saying that, I have come um, not to bring peace but division, that's really what's going to happen as a result of his coming, not the intended purpose for why he's coming to prescribe that kind of behavior among us. Mm -hmm. Just got a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about the foot race to the tomb. Yeah, that's one of those passages that that you kind of wonder about. Um, John wrote about that and whether he was uh, trying to jab at Peter for outrunning him or not. (laughs) You know, that's one of those things that's a little puzzling to us. But obviously, it was one of those details that he put in the Bible. Um, So at the resurrection, after the resurrection, when the women came back and said, he's gone, he's been raised from the dead, um, Peter and John, you know, ran back 
as fast as they could and to see for themselves. And it's basically said that John kind of says it, that there was one who outran him. And we all assume that it's John who outran him to the tomb. And why is that in the Bible? Well, it's one of those things that's one of the specific details that's part of the resurrection account. And it kind of adds authenticity to it because it sounds like a strange thing to include, but if it really did happen, it actually argues more for the authentic telling of what really took place that day. Mm -hmm. And so these little details that are in the resurrection account are there for us, and a lot of the times some of these strange stories include details that were like, why did why did God put that in there? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire the writer to write that? Yeah. And it's because it actually argues for the authenticity of the account. Yeah. Why was there 153 fish? Why was Jesus had his head on a cushion? Right. All yeah. of those little details serve a purpose. Yeah. Eric, so much fun. I love having you on the show. I have a bunch of questions that are coming in from, from listeners now, and we're out of time. So oh, Maybe uh, next time. Yeah, let's try to uh, next time. And I would love to have you back on soon because you're such a delight. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's yeah. my great privilege, Bill. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff has been my guest. The book we've been chatting about is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. We'll take a little break, and then hour two is just uh, ahead, and we've got our prayer series continues. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be talking to Dr. Eric Tonus. We can hardly wait. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.